Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. My guest um, uh, in uh, the Hay on Y chair is Gita Sereni, who was born in the 20s in Vienna, who is a distinguished European and European journalist who's written for the Sunday Times, the Times, the Daily Telegraph, the New York Times, Dies 8. Uh, she has, uh, she's a, her experiences as a person and journalist are the experiences really of this century. She was at the Nuremberg Trials. She has written a remarkable book, Into the Darkness, about Franz Stangl, who was the commandant of Treblinka death camp. She has written um, an even more remarkable book, um, which I've been rereading, uh, Albert Speer, um, his battle, well, I think it's with truth, it's for truth, with truth, it's certainly one of the crucial issues which we'll be discussing. And she wrote then, after the uh, events of, of Mary and Norma Bell in 1968, she wrote The Case of Mary Bell in 1972, which was an account of uh, those uh, child killings and the trial and the aftermath. But it didn't have, it didn't contain um, Mary Bell's uh, perspective, which came many years later. I think in 1995 you indicated that you'd be interested in interviewing her. She was, uh, had been released some time, and in 1996 you did interview uh, Mary Bell, and that was the, uh, the core uh, of, the new, of the new book, Cries Unheard, which, as you know, uh, unless you've been living in outer darkness, um, <laughs> Uh, or you resolutely do not read the British press, and who would blame you? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Geordie. Uh, I, 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 I'm sorry, but I didn't mean that, actually. Um, um, uh, has been has, has stirred up all manner of interesting uh, questions. Now, uh, we will doubtless get on to that, but before we do, I, I, I think... Um, I... I uh, the commonest question I'm ever asked about this radio series I do in the psychiatrist's chair, the commonest by far is how do you know that the people you are interviewing are telling the truth? And I've often thought about this question and wondered about it um, and reflected on how you and I know anyone is telling the truth. And Gita Sereni's life as a, an observer and journalist has been about, in a sense, trying to um, get to grips with some of the truths of the 20th century, some of the horrendous truths of the 20th century. So I, I wondered, uh, when I was not just reading Cries Unheard, but the book on Spirit too, um, what your reflections on this issue is, because that has been one of the key questions arising out of Cries Unheard, this question of the reliability of evidence. Well, I, I would say that... Uh I very rarely accept anything without uh, checking um, what they are saying. And of course, as far as Speer is concerned, uh, most of the things were highly checkable because, uh, as you probably know, and some of you know, uh, the, the Nazis uh, <laughs> maintained the, the most extraordinary archives that have ever been maintained by anyone by any country, and even about, uh, it now turns out more and more, even about their worst deeds, uh, there are archives. And so it was really not that difficult to check Speer 
also, of course, it is my, if you like, my method, though I apologize for the word, but my method to always check with other people, other contemporaries, or people who were involved with the people, what they say. And then between the different, um, the different uh, statements or stories, because uh, I don't take statements, I don't interview in the sense of, of you know, interviews in quotes. Um, I always call them talks or conversations. Um, uh, it, it is a very different way, you know, of doing journalism. And I am proud of being a journalist. I don't pretend um, to be anything else. But it is true that it's a different kind of journalism which goes after this truth, though many journalists go after truth, you know. I mean, it's not, not so that, that all journalists are, are, are the tabloids. They really aren't. Uh, and many people go after the truth and long to find it. But this is, of course, a search for truth which, uh, which is very difficult because it takes a long time. It costs, if I may say so, a great deal of money. That is, you, you have to give it not just weeks or months, but quite often years. I mean, the research on the Speer book and, of course, my work with him altogether took 12 years. I don't mean that I worked only on that. I did things in between time, of course, in fact, to support it because you can't get enough in advance to support 12 years of work. Um, the Mary Bell, I, I'll come back to your question about truth. Uh, the Mary Bell, um, uh, my conversations with Mary Bell took uh, six months virtually every day, uh, except the weekends, and uh, another two months from time to time. So altogether, probably seven, seven and a half months. And this is, um, this is different, you know. It's a different way of searching for the truth because what you do is that, um, and I don't know whether you, I suppose you don't do this as a psychiatrist. Here's the difference, one of the differences, one of the many differences between also our training and, uh, and our methods, which is that um, um, because it takes such a long time, I am able to, when I am doubting what is being said to me, I am able months later to come back to the same subject. And there is then, of course, always a question of judgment. You have to, you have to dare to judge. Isn't that right? I mean, yes. don't you feel that? You have to, it's your judgment, basically, then, whether the person is telling the truth yes. or not. But if you compare, for instance, if you read the Mary Bell book, you will see uh, Cries Unheard, you will see that on at least six or eight very, very important points, I keep asking her again. I don't uh, keep asking her in the sense of manipulating her, as I have been accused of doing, uh, into saying one thing or another. No, no. I want to see how she replies. You see, sometimes people can reply thing in a way, can't they? As if they have, um, well, learned. Mm -hmm. almost, or have, um, um, uh, you know, in their fantasy, constructed Precisely. an answer yes. so often that the answer comes, whoop, exactly the same, mm -hmm. in, exa in precisely the same words. Or else they have, that doesn't apply, of course, to Mary Bell, who had never been questioned, ever, ever on these things. I mean, during all of her 
uh, imprisonment of 12 years. She had never been asked about anything of her background or of the two children she killed. It was as if this didn't exist. So it isn't that. It isn't that. But I did repeat these questions. And it is very interesting. And I have all this on tape, which is important, because this could be evaluated, couldn't it? But I think I asked you before we came in here whether I could perhaps uh, uh, make this offer here. And somebody will no doubt uh, hear it and perhaps print it. And here I am. I'm committed to it. That is to lend these tapes. To the, these are the tapes. These are these are the tapes of my conversations with uh, Mary, and of course there are hundreds of hours, and they couldn't. Nobody could listen to all of them, but they could listen to some. And if we found a group of psychiatrists, or specialists, or experts who would like to have these tapes and work on them, and evaluate them, I am very ready. You know to hear what they have to say, to see whether they feel that I led this young woman or that she manipulated me. And I think this would be very interesting to hear. Because you did, early in the book, you say the difficulty throughout has been to believe. So you yourself were acknowledging that this is a central problem. It is a central problem with uh, <laughs> particularly um, because she, uh, of course, not of her daily life, for instance. That, I had no problem about that. Um, I realized very quickly that uh, this is a very strange girl, you know. She's, just, she's not like everybody who's sitting here. I mean, she, she really is a, a very strange girl. She's a, she, she still is. And to me, she's still, in many ways, a child, which explains some of my, uh, some of my uh, feelings about her. I don't usually have feelings, really, about uh, <laughs> quote subjects <laughs> in, in, in my work. I mean, not, not real feelings. I may, I may like them. I liked Speer. I grew to like Speer when I realized that he was really searching for the truth inside himself. I very much like it when people obviously and truthfully search for the truth. But Mary, well, she is... Um, in many ways, a child, because she's never had a childhood. And so with us, with my husband and me, she became a child on many occasions, and particularly in those questions which you are referring to now, where I say the problem was to believe. Because she did tell us, or tell me, me I'm sorry, my husband was not there during the conversations, but she did tell me things which which did seem uh, really hard to believe. And so I had to keep... Such as? Well, I mean, of course, particularly, particularly the stories about her childhood. Um, and, of course, some of her stories about her treatment at Style Prison, where, um, where, where, where she had experiences which, you know, I mean, none of us would think that, that this could ordinarily happen but which obviously happens all the time. And it most particularly happens to adolescents, young people who should never be in such prisons. It is one of the purposes of this book to show what should not be. You see, I'm using this girl, Mary Bell. I'm using her. I see it in the book, don't I? Quite frankly, that I am 
but I am using her. I want to show um, in, through the person and through the experiences of this one girl who did a terrible thing, two terrible things, when she was 11 years old. She's not a killer, but she was a child who killed. That is, she came to a breaking point. Really, I should have called the book The Breaking Point, because that is, that is what it is about. But you say there has not been a day when I've not asked myself whether writing this book was the right thing to do. Now, you've told us one or two of the reasons why you think it was the right thing to do. What were your own doubts then? My own doubts, oh, they come right to you. My own doubts were that Mary very obviously needed to be in the hands of a psychiatrist. I simply did not, I simply, I simply was not sure that I was the right person. So why didn't you suggest she see one? I did. <laughs> I know you did, and she said, I won't talk to psychiatrists. Though, I did. <laughs> though, though she did talk, I mean, there is that very interesting uh, episode in her uh, period mm -hmm. when she talked to, uh, she was in a group, admittedly, with Dr. Chamorette, is that how you pronounce yes, his name? Yes, Chamorette. Now, he was a psychiatrist, and she knew he was a psychiatrist. Yes, but you see, <laughs> it was absolutely impossible for Chammy, as we all call him, to see her by herself. This was not his uh, role. His role, And she was therefore not threatened. There was no threat. I mean, the only time, she only spoke with him once, on one single occasion. After all, in two years, mm. when she attended this, uh, it took her two years to be allowed to attend, can you believe this, mm. to be allowed to attend a group therapy meeting. She wanted to attend it, not, not to get help from a psychiatrist, no, no. It was because a girl, another prisoner, she was extremely fond of, who lived in a different, I'm sorry to tell you this little story, but that's how it is, who lived in a different block and she was not allowed to see, but she attended the same group therapy. So she said, I'll attend the group therapy and that way I'll see my girlfriend. That was the reason. As far as, she then did become quite fond, I must say, of Chemi who is the most enchanting man. But, so that was one doubt. You felt that she should see a psychiatrist, I but she wouldn't. She Other doubts? Did you have doubts about the extent to which you would be exploiting her? Well, frankly, I didn't. I would have had, uh, sorry, Tony, I would have had such doubts, and I'm, I'm throwing myself here into the burning oil, I know. I would have had such doubts if I had not given her money. I'm going to let you think about this for a second. Because you know, the money, the money, it was the money that drove the tabloids mad. It was the money, the money, that this 11-year-old child, now 40, received, which even caused people in high places to comment on how dreadful and repugnable it was, repugnant it was, that I should give her money. But you would all, I would be very grateful to you if you would all think for yourselves. How could I not have given her money? How could I accept to receive a large advance from my publishers? To have her spend seven months 
going through distress such as you cannot possibly imagine in giving me this story with which I constructed this book and not give her some of this money. I'll leave it to you. The reservation I had, yes, and uh, I don't know the way around this, is um, the daughter. Now, you're, right. uh, you're a, a very experienced journalist, and, and you know the media perhaps better than I do. Um, and that the one bit I found difficult was that you seem genuinely surprised that w at the media reaction, and that, for instance, the famous Sun headline, which was, I think, we've found her as if we were all looking for her, but anyway, they were. Um, but I, I, there is, in, at the beginning of the book, you're clearly aware of this problem, but you feel you can reassure uh, Mary because you say, rightly, books are different from newspapers. Um, as, but wrongly, of course, also because books and newspapers, as this is a very good, obvious physical representation of, intertwine. So that, I did feel, you, were you foolish in retrospect in feeling that you could protect her daughter? I, I did not think I could protect her daughter. You didn't? Um, no. I thought that I could, could protect her daughter. I, I must say I did not for one single minute did I think that these newspapers would go a mad and that they would behave in this atrocious way. But why I, didn't you? I mean, they didn't. I, I, I didn't because I was stupid. I'm sorry, I can't give you any other answer. Mm -hmm. I'm, I was, uh, it is, uh, I suppose it is a kind of naivete that I, I, I did think that uh, when the book was published or serialized, that there would be controversy on various points, even about the money. I thought there would be controversy, and I say so in the book. Can I just tell you just, just a yeah. small little technical question? Do you think if it hadn't been serialized, you mightn't have had the, the trouble you've had? Uh, it's very difficult because I was, I was uh, grateful to the Times for their... For their um, for the, except on the first day, but for the very responsible way in which they did this. And um, so I, I, I have to say this first. I think perhaps if it hadn't been serialized, we would have had less trouble. But you know, basically not, because the trouble started the day that this, what we call the secret which we had, what the book was, the subject of the book, which we had by agreement with the official solicitor, who is, uh, who is the guardian at Lytton for the child, uh, to keep this totally quiet until the actual publication of the book. Which meant, by the way, can I just mention this? It also meant that I could not tell the parents of the victims that this book was coming out, because it was quite clear and obvious that if I did, the parents of the victims would go to the newspapers as indeed they did. You see, so our plan was to tell them two days before. I was going to go and see them, bring them a letter, talk to them, explain to them why, and take the whatever would come. And they would have been very unhappy anyway. I mean, let's face it, why wouldn't they be? But still, this is what would have happened. So and I, as a child, can I come back to yes, the child? Yes, the child, yes. The child. You said you, 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 you didn't think you could protect her. No, I did not think I could protect her. I told Mary, from the very start, and I think it's in the book, I told Mary from the very start that the child would find out her about her identity um, through the book. The child is intelligent, very intelligent, and uh, the child reads. So whatever happened, 
you know, whatever would have happened, the child would have seen the book in, at Waterstones or whatever. And uh, I was absolutely certain, and by the way, events have shown me to be right, um, that she guessed that there was a secret in her mother's life, and that she had always, as children, in whose family there is a secret. Well, you know better this. You know this better than I. If there is a secret in a family, the children very often don't dare to ask. They are frightened to ask. And so we now know that this little girl has known for years that there was a bad secret, as she called it, and that she didn't dare to ask. So in a way, in a terrible way, of course, it is a relief that this is now out. And uh, it ha it, I wish to God, I really wish to God, it hadn't happened in this terrible way. But I always knew it would happen. So you see, I, I was on a different wavelength with this than you thought, perhaps. So, so you say... Um, I thought it would be good for the child if it came out. Did you? Yeah. And it turns out that it is good for the child that it's out. And if you had thought that it wouldn't have been good for the child, would you have written it? Well, I think that's a good question. Of course, I, uh, if I had really thought that it would be bad for the child, I might have been reluctant to do the book. I always thought it would be good for her. I thought this child, I mean, if you want to know exactly, I thought this child should have been told when she was seven years old. At seven, a child can assimilate such knowledge, perhaps much more easily, make kind of you know, make a, a make, make uh, just take it into her life. I did think that uh, that in en plein puberty, as we say, it is more difficult. You know, she's now 14. I think that is more difficult. But um, it had to happen, had to happen, um, and it's happened. What is it? We'll come back, I've no doubt, to the cries unheard. But you've written about Stangl, you've written about Speer, you've written about Mary Bell. Um, don't need me to ask this question. Anyone in the audience will ask this question. What is it about, uh, what is it about, quote, evil that attracts you? Because I have to say at once that Mary was never evil. I put so it she's in the comments. She's outside. She's outside this in a way. But but um, but uh, but in the minds, obviously, in the minds and hearts of a lot of people, yes. of ordinary people, what she did would be classified as a kind of evil. Yeah. Killing yes. two small children. Yes, we'd have to talk more about that. And we will. <laughs> of but, course. But let's course, come back to you and, and, and yes. Schweer and um, Stengel, certainly. You know, I think, I mean, it's a fair question. And of course, in the last five weeks, I've been forced to ask myself this question very often. Thank you for being interested in it. I mean, I, I, I think it is, and I don't know whether there are many people here. I see, see a lot of young faces um, who uh, share, who, who are of my, of my husband's and my generation. Um, I think that we were very affected. I was certainly immensely affected by the war, um, in which nothing evil, I've got to say, happened to me. But I did become aware of a great deal of evil, and particularly of terrible things being done to children, because I, I, I worked with uh, damaged children uh, at the end of the war and immediately after the war. Uh, in Germany for two years, and uh, I, I, I saw things which are, you know, which really, or I heard things which, which, which really were evil. And I think that perhaps it was there, 
that I began to ask myself this question, why? Where does it come from? I mean, you ask me a personal question, so I'm giving you a personal answer. For me, it happened that way. For some of you, perhaps, who are interested in this too, it would happen in a different way. But for me, it happened that way. Um, uh, certainly, my, my, my first, not, not the case of Mary Bell, that was, uh, it, 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 this was really a, uh, in a way, a coincidence. I, I went to see this trial, and I saw that this child was being called evil. I saw already at the trial how her mother was uh, reacting to her and treating her. I saw a resemblance in Mary's face and in Mary's, who's an 11, as you know, in her reaction to this adult trial, to these lawyers and so on and so forth. I saw a resemblance to the children uh, I had taken care of in, who had come from the camps in, uh, in Germany. And I, I was, I hope you don't think that I'm being too sure of myself. I'm never entirely sure of anything. But um, I did think it was probable that this was a severely abused child. I was, and I don't mean sexually abused. I just mean abused that this was a very, very unhappy child who had had a terrible childhood. And I was, I thought then that these terrible things she did were a reaching of a breaking point. And I've got to ask you this question, you understand? I mean, I, uh, it's not because I don't think that's, it's terribly relevant, but I'll ask it because lots of people ask it. They say, notwithstanding what you've said, children exposed to terrible things, only a handful of them do what Mary Bell did. Therefore, right. whatever you're going to come up with is not going to explain Mary Bell. What do you say to that? No, it can explain, it can explain Mary Bell, but it cannot explain the other children. That is the point. I mean, the, what is not explained... There are two things that are superficially not explained uh, by the book, of course. And, and, and one is, um, why do some children who are severely abused but I mean, you are the better man to answer this than me. Why do some, I'll not put it back to you, why don't I? Well, <laughs> why do some children? And the reason is because are, I'm here in by, <laughs> interviewing you. Yes, but I you, will, said, I promise. you said we were going to have a conversation. That is true. Right? That is true. So that we're is about true. to converse. That is true. We're about to converse. That is true. Okay, and okay. so let me ask the question. Why is it that, <laughs> why is it that some children who are are severely abused as, as uh, in their early, early childhood, uh, reach a breaking point, sometimes at 8, sometimes at 10, 12, 14. I mean, you've seen it again in America just now, these two terrible cases, right, in Arkansas and Oregon. Exactly the same thing. I mean, it is precisely the same thing as Mary Bell, and of course there are others. Now, why is it that some reach a breaking point? Let me just to make this question a bit more complicated. Because, <laughs> because it is not, you see, it is not only about children, only, in quotes, children who kill. I am trying to talk about children who commit serious crimes. And there are now more and more, and really we're speaking in tens of thousands of children, really very young children, beginning seven-ish, you know, and going up to 
well, where does childhood end? Let's say 15, because now when they're 16, they're really hardly children. And they are not necessarily killing, but arson, the torturing of animals and old people, rape, these are the crimes that I am talking about. I am not only talking about killing. And if I use this one girl, because she happens to be able, capable of giving me, forgive me for putting it that way, giving you if you had been there and wanted to do it, if she would see a psychiatrist, which she wouldn't, <laughs> her story, well, it so happens that she killed, which was the worst thing, of course. But there are others who do things very nearly the same, and who I think, if you looked for it, you would find equal troubles in their backgrounds. So what I'm saying is, let us look at the children, at our children, any of us, let us consider how we treat our children. To come back to you, <laughs> why do some children break down and others who are so badly abused, emotionally, psychologically abused, do not break down? What is it? Well, I, I think you have um, provided an answer very similar to my own when you first of all started to indicate uh, the wide range of the variables involved, the kinds of violence and breakdown that are involved when you're dealing with disturbed children and the thin lines between certain kinds of violence and indeed killing. I would accept that. And uh, uh, the, the problem about trying to make sense of almost any event or mental state is that you can pull together so many of the variables of childhood experience and parental influence and social breakdown and educational experience. And then people will leave in, in the little hole, the little vacuum, constitution, genetics. Um, but that's why I'm asking you. You've, you've worked in this area as a journalist, as I, I have to an extent as a psychiatrist. And I'm, one, I'm trying to see, do you come up with the same kind of answer I do, which is, in a sense, it's not an answer. It's to say, insofar as we know, we, many of these things can be understood to a very large extent in terms of the variables that we know. But there's still an area we don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I fully agree with that. I mean, I think that... I would, I would go further. Can I just yeah. finish and say... Sorry. And because there's a, an area that we don't know, ideologists then rush in. And those who are biologically inclined or for various psychological reasons, I've no doubt, will say... The key then in that big hole is genes, is constitution, yeah. or is something we call evil. There are, at the end of the day, a small number of children and they are evil. We'll come back to why people might need to believe that. And so on. others will say, no, 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 it's social conditioning. They'll, they'll all, they're, a vacuum abhors a vacuum or whatever it is. And it fills itself with some explanation. And because I don't think at the end of the day, I, I, don't, I was going to ask you, do you think at the end of the day you've, quote, explained Mary Bell, what would you say? Do you think you understand why she did it? I think that I, sorry, I think I have explained this one case, yes, but I don't think that I have explained, I don't think I've found, you know, the explanation for the big thing. That's true. I have not found the explanation why some children do and some children don't. That's what I was asking you. And I think it is, in fact, a mystery, which we haven't solved, which I'm quite sure, um, 
And if that sounds arrogant, I will have to ask you to forgive me. I am quite sure that books like this will help us to find that explanation, eventually. But I have not found it. Uh, but there was one thing that I thought I'd bring up in connection with this. Now, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned the, these other two books uh, I did, uh, about Franz Stanger, Commandant of Treblinka, and Albert Speer, who was Hitler's architect and minister of um, uh, armament and production, and, and probably the person closest to Hitler. Certainly, he was the person who, who, knew, who knew more about Hitler than anyone else, I believe, in the world, which was a great thing for me, that he was willing to share some of this knowledge with me. Um, now, both these men, and there's no other connection between them, you understand. I mean, Speer is an enormous brain, a tremendously talented man, in an countless way, ways, a man of excellence, who um, became, as I call it, uh, morally extinguished under Hitler. Uh, Franz Stanger was a primitive man who I think was good as a boy. Everything I learned about him, uh, his childhood, he was a good boy. And my God, he became responsible. He became, he commanded, if you like, the death of over a million people. I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty horrifying. Now, there is one thing these two men have in common, which was a profoundly unhappy and really emotionally and physically, not physically in Speer's case, but physically in Stanger's case, abusive childhood. Of course, you can say, oh, God, this is such a cliche. But of course, the fact is, it is not a cliche. It is not a cliche. And, and those people, and you have, some of you may have read some of the things which have been written about, um, about my, my, my new book, uh, saying, well, my God, so she tells us she had an unhappy childhood. So what? Well, I mean, with this, they destroy the entire science, if it is a science, of psychiatry. Because if psychiatry cannot go back to the childhood of people, then I would imagine you would agree that they could do very much less than they do, psychiatrists. So uh, I, your response to, um, say, that famous phrase of majors, there's, I can't, I'm paraphrasing it, there's too much understanding, not enough condemning. Well, that's idiotic, isn't it? The, uh, the response of... Um, the, the, the response, I mean, the temptation I have is to suggest that the problem of your model uh, for many people is that it, it pulls, quote, evil back onto the continuum of normal human experience. It, it demands the possibility that any of us could be Mary Bell. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whereas there's a profound need, perhaps understandable need, we feel so threatened by horror, to distance it, to reify it, to depersonalize de it. Do to you make, think of this? Yes. To Go make on. these people monsters. I would prefer to believe that Speer was a monster or Stangl was a monster, and particularly when it becomes an ordinary, everyday person, 
like Mary Bell was when she was 11, uh, then it's better. I feel more comfortable uh, in some ways uh, to believe that uh, she is different, absolutely phenomenologically, existentially different from my little daughter running around at 11 or, uh, or yours. Of course, particularly because she's a British child. Well, say more. I'm an Irish That's, man. No, no, no. I, I don't mean. I don't mean the comparison with you. I no, 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 no. I, I meant why you pick. No, no. <laughs> I was interested in your adjective, British child. Go on. She's a British child, and uh, and and I mean, I've been trying. You know, I'm. I'm. Uh, I haven't been unaffected by all this stuff in the last five weeks. I mean, it's been pretty horrendous. It's been rather nightmarish, to tell you the truth. It but, has. But it has. In, and uh, in what and way? I have been asking myself the question: What is it? What is it in these people, some of them, after all, perfectly sensible journalists, you know, with a good record, who suddenly write like, like, like a madman? I mean, who, uh, who, who reject everything which, uh, which touches upon certain subjects. I mean, subjects which are part of our lives, whether this is money, bad, bad money, whether it is uh, um, emotional abuse by uh, mothers against children, whether it is, oh my God, now I come up with this terrible thing, child sexual abuse. I mean, Mary's child sexual abuse has been thrown at me in, I don't know, I mean, we have 185 pages of writing in newspapers. And of these, I would have thought about 120 at least, if not more. Throw this back at me. They say it cannot be the truth. How can I believe it? The mother died first. The, the mother she died could before she could ever talk about this, we might say. Yeah. Um, and just sticking with that, yes. and your response to that, because that is a, certainly, you're quite right, one of the fundamental questions when I said to somebody I know I was going to interview you, they asked, they said that. They said, do I not think it's significant that Mary Bell only produced the material about child sexual abuse after her mother was dead? Now, there are various reasons why that might be, but nonetheless, the question was clearly implying that the one piece of corroborative evidence that you could draw upon was missing. You see, but it wasn't. And I say so in the book, and they deliberately, I must say it mm. must be deliberate, because child sexual abuse is so, so horrifying to, to the human being, you know, to the normal man and woman, that uh, in, uh, it, this is not just in Britain. I mean, in America, too, you have the same thing. You have the same reaction. But you say it, it in is, the book. It, I, I say, I, I, I prove in the book, uh, with the... With the admittedly little proof that I was able to find, but it is very powerful, that it is the truth. And, and uh, I tell you, I, I, I was not sure. I was not sure that it was true. It was almost too much. She tells a story. I mean, uh, just for those of you who haven't read the book, and after all, there must be many amongst you who haven't. Um, she, tells, she tells the story that it, uh, from the age of four and a half to about seven and a half, uh, her mother, um, her, her mother gave her to the clients. She was she was a part-time prostitute, and she specialized in sadomasochism. And um, she she says that her mother uh, presented her to the clients to make use of, 
and she describes the place where this happened. And as she described the place, I told myself this cannot be true. Because she said the worst thing was, I can't remember the very words now, but I mean, it's in the book. She said the very worst thing was that I was, I was on this bed, I was on this bed, and, and she had, she had um, crucifixes and rosaries t stuck to the ceiling, and they hung down, and they touched me as these people, I'm not going to say what they did, because there's some children here too in the room, so I'm not going to um, specify what they did. But as they did what they did to her, um, the, the, the rosaries and the crucifixes touched her. And she said, I felt, I felt so dirty. Now you understand, this, this is a Catholic family. The mother was uh, fanatically Catholic. Um, um, this Catholicism started in the mother, just a quick word, uh, started in the mother, particularly when her father, to whom she had been quite extraordinarily close, uh, died. And what you will find in the book is that when I did the research for the first book in 69 and 70, and talked at that time for a long time with uh, Mary Bell's grandmother, the mother of the mother, and with Mary Bell's aunts, the sisters of the mother, both her grandmother and her youngest aunt told me very specifically I found this in my notes after I had doubted this story. I found in my notes, that, which I didn't publish in the first book because the lawyers took it out, that this child, Betty Bell, Mary Bell's mother, at 13 surrounded herself with crucifixes and rosaries, hanging them all around her in her room. I mean, this was an echo which was almost, un it was irresistible, if you like. That is number one. But there is, do you want me to tell mm, me? Yes, other? I think it's important, because for some reason, you're right. It, it just has not, a, it is a surprise to me when I read it's in the book, there. the corroboration. It was there, is there, and nobody has used this, nobody. But do, and do nobody refers. More. Nobody refers to the other thing, which is, which I must say is equally important and will particularly, will remind you, of course, which is, that when Mary was, um, I, I might be a little bit off here for those of you who are going to read the book. I think it was when she was 14 or 15. She had some very, very unhappy moments. She was then in a special unit, in a secure unit, where otherwise she was rather happy because there was a wonderful, wonderful headmaster who loved her. Dixon. Dixon, James Dixon. He was a pioneer, really, in his own way. The only unfortunate thing was that he thought she was innocent. Yes. He thought she was innocent of these crimes. And therefore, in a way, I'm coming to a different subject, I'll get off it right away, but in a way, she, in a way, he, in a way he forced her to believe herself innocent. Do you see what I mean? So, so she could not possibly take issue with, I mean, she couldn't take issue with what she'd done. It was simply driven out of her because Mr. Dixon was, the most important man, the most important person in the world to her, and she could not disappoint him. However, at one point she was extremely unhappy and she began, which you are very familiar with, to mutilate herself. Mm. She, she, she cut herself, 
most on her arms. And these wounds, these scars are visible now. She cut herself all, all the way up her arm. And Mr. Dixon said, look, this is really bad. I'm really worried about this. And you have to see a psychiatrist. Well, if Mr. Dixon said she had to see a psychiatrist, she'd see a psychiatrist. So she was taken by Mr. Dixon and his deputy, Mr. Potter, to go to see a psychiatrist at Winnick Hospital, which was a nearby uh, mental hospital. Now, for some reason, which I don't know, and Mary cannot explain to me, her mother was along. Her mother was brought to be there at the same time. I mean, I'm sure this is incomprehensible to you, too. It's totally incomprehensible to me. And her mother was present when she was asked questions. It's very strange. So the psychiatrist first asked the mother, why do you think Mary would do this to herself? And the mother said, you just want to get things out of me. You just want to, you, I, I'm not going to say a thing. I'm not going to say one single thing. And she won't say a thing either. And so Mary said, well, I remember a man with three fingers. And I have to say it, and a white penis and a game of blind man's buff. Now you see, there is not a single reviewer, not a single reviewer who mentioned this, because this man with three fingers and the game of blind man's buff, this was in 19, sorry, I should repeat this, this was in, when Mary was uh, 14. It, it was in 1980. Well, it must have been in 1979, 1980. And no, it was earlier. It was earlier. Yeah, it was, it was much earlier. Sorry. <laughs> I've missed this now, but it doesn't matter. She was 14 years old. And when she was 40, this man and this game of blind man's buff is right central to her story of sexual child abuse. Now, what would you feel? if you get this, and if you have this from that time, and then this. And of course, this description, by the way, is in Mary's record, in Mary's official record. So it is not something that Mary invented for my sake, but it is in her record, which is in the hands of the probation service and which was read to me. I didn't have it in my hands because that would be illegal, but it was read to me. It's there. It's there. Do you see? I, um, there is no doubt. I realized time has passed. I did promise. So I'm so I, sorry. No, it's not you. It's the, the subject itself. Um, so I'll uh, honor my promise. Um, I need the, the, there is a microphone. And what I suggest is that I want the, the first two questions, really. I'll take the first so that the microphone. There's two microphones? Yes. So there's somebody. Can, I'll, I'll take that as the first question. And I'll take a, if you take the microphone, then we'll follow up with you. And that will keep it going quickly. Yes, please. Um, hello, Mrs. Serini. My name is Mary Loudon. And I'm neither a journalist nor a psychiatrist. I'm an author. And my books are non-fiction books based on very long and intensive interviews with people. My first book was um, a book of interviews with nuns called Unveiled. And shortly after it came out, one of the nuns I interviewed left the order. She had a nervous breakdown, and she was actually asked to leave. And she wrote to me a series of very abusive and aggressive letters 
saying that this was in fact as a direct result of being interviewed by me because she'd realized lots of things about her life. This was um, counter to the experience I'd had when I had interviewed her over a period of two years um, when we got on very well and we'd had very, uh, a very deep sort of interviewing relationship. And I wanted to say really that I want to raise the, the issue of the money with you because if I had ever paid any of the people I interviewed in the way that you paid Mary Bell, I would be assuming some kind of personal responsibility for them and for their decisions and for their actions because I would be saying in effect as I, as I think you're saying about Mary Bell, how can I not pay you when I've put you through this pain? Now, I wasn't actually aware at the time that I was putting someone through this pain and in fact uh, events have shown that, I mean she's, she's now written to me since and all sorts of things have happened since that have rather put paid to the, the aggressive letter she sent at the time. but. The problem with interviewing in the way that you do, and perhaps the way I do, I suspect we work quite differently actually, but you know, from what you said, is that the ethics of the interview are immensely, immensely complicated, and you cannot but obscure those ethics and those boundaries and those difficult relationships uh, any more than by, by giving somebody money. I feel very strongly that you actually made your own life very difficult by doing that. I'm not going to pass any kind of judgment. That's, that's not for me to do. But I think that you made your own life very difficult. I also think that you, I, I get from the interviews I've read with you in the papers and from hearing you speak today, that you may regard interviewing as some kind of science, whereby if you probe long enough and hard enough and in all sorts of different ways, you will eventually reach a truth or a conclusion. I would say that that's not the case, that a good interview at its very best is portraiture and no more. And I don't know if you've read Life After Life by Tony Parker, which is interviews with 12 murderers, but I think that's an exemplary piece of work. But it's portraiture, it's representation, it's his attempt to represent those people as fairly as he can, given what they said to him. And all I, all, all I really wanted to say is I think perhaps you've made your own life difficult by paying her. Um, and uh, that, that's it, really. And I, I don't know how you feel about that. Well, I certainly seem to have made my life difficult. That's certainly true. <laughs> I fully agree with you there. Um, I mean, we would have to have a far longer conversation. I'd be happy to do that, you know, uh, about the ethics of uh, interviewing the way you obviously do and the way I do and how these ethics uh, can perhaps be um, upset. Um, I think that... Uh, this, I have never given any money, by the way, to anybody in my life. This is absolutely the only case. And the reason why I, I don't reject, of course, but why I think you are mistaken in this case, and it's the only case in my experience, um, is because the money, um, and I don't mind discussing that just for a minute if, I, if we have the time, um, the money had a meaning to her, and I knew this, um, in a very, very special sense. Not, not for working with me. I mean, it had absolutely nothing to do with it. You will say, well, all right, she can say this, but it, it, it may not be true. You would say that. But you see, the money was a very specific thing, not only pragmatically, that of course she had to have money because they had no money, and they were going to cut themselves off uh, the social security network uh, by um, signing a publishing contract. Uh, that's just pragmatically. But Mary wanted one thing above all, 
which was to change her life, to get off the social security network, to bring up her child in a normal way, to buy a house, to find roots, roots which she's never had, and one more thing, to face the music. Because I told her, if you buy a house, if you buy a house, if they find you, if they find you, you cannot leave. She had left repeatedly when they did came close. The, the same people, the same tabloids, came close to finding her. I don't know why they pursued just her. They did for 18 years. But I, but, I, but I think you interpreted wrongly, and maybe it's my fault that I interpreted wrongly. I didn't feel so terrible for her. Let, I let, felt terrible for me. I let, felt terrible for me. I thought, I cannot accept all this money and not have her share it. She is going to spend this time with me. She I, is going to give this to me. It's not the question of what she gives me. Yes. I'll, I'll take this. Yes, the second question, please. But we can talk more. And if there's a question over here, you can pass that microphone on. Yes. Right, please. Um, Gita, it's Marjorie Wallace from Sunday Times. Hi, Marjorie. I'm here. Where are you? Um, I just <laughs> wanted to ask a question. We, we obviously don't know the identity of the person who abused her. Was, were there much, part, many parts that you had to remove for legal reasons that people forced you to remove? Because talking all about this truth, and we've both been together through all this, where you actually take out very important sections. That's one question. And the second question is, I, I slightly puzzle, did you not tell the daughter right at the beginning that, that this was going to happen? Was there a reason you didn't start saying that we're going to work as a partnership and that this is going to be the end result with the daughter? The daughter, did you say, Marjorie? The daughter, the daughter yes. yes. I never met the daughter. You never met her? Absolutely not. That was a condition put by the official solicitor, that I would never meet the daughter. I talked to her many times on the telephone. I begged Mary to make very sure that she didn't know our name. Alas, of course, she did. Um, you know, because they're not the kind of people who keep this up, this sort of thing. Uh, but the, the illegal thing that you were asking about, are you asking about this book or about the case of Mary Bell? I'm talking, no, I'm not asking about this book. How much did you have to leave out of it? And were there some important well, things that uh, were left out of it? Well, um, I can tell you that the only thing which I, there are only two things which were taken out. One is the sexual molestation she suffered at Red Bank School. That was to a large extent taken out. And the second, and I'm treading a rather fine line here, the second was the name of the person who um, made her his, his mistress at Askman Grange, which was the last prison she was in. That's it. Otherwise, nothing was removed. From the first book, an enormous amount was removed because the mother was alive. We can't hear you. Effect of fame. Effect of fame on, the, on Mary Bell herself, because we've seen ourselves how it affects people. Have you thought that through and what happened to her? Well, Mary, um, I mean, I've talked to her uh, lately about this, and um, uh, the one thing she hopes is to distance herself from it all. She, she, she very truly 
And you can say again, is it true, you know, but I believe she very truly wants to live a normal life. I mean, she, within three days of getting back to, you know, she was in, in a safe, safe custody, safe, in a safe place um, for, for several weeks. And within three days of being back there, she accepted a, a job, a very, very, very low paying, um, but it's not the money. A very, very ordinary job. Very ordinary indeed. A manual job. She doesn't want fame. Next question. Okay. Yes, my question was partly answered when you said that you'd never met the daughter, but what I was going to ask, slightly peripheral to the central issues, the cycle of abuse, whether in fact Mary Bell, if her greatest stated aim is to bring up her daughter in a normal fashion, is the woman capable of so doing? Oh, I'm I may glad not wish you to answer that, that now. I'm but that may be a sequel, another book. Because <laughs> when you read, and I hope you will read the book, not, not so that I can sell the book, but I hope you will read it because that, the book is full of this. Uh, Mary is, and God knows how, but she is an absolutely extraordinary mother. This child is, and I, it's not from my own knowledge because I don't know the child, but of course I have talked to and worked with a number of people who know her very well. And she is the most stable, the happiest little girl you can imagine. They have an extremely close relationship. And the result appears to be that contrary to all these people who wrote that she is now destroyed, thanks to me, right? Uh, she's happy as the day is long. I'm not saying this is going to last. I mean, of course, Tony knows this much better than I. Things may happen which may make her very unhappy. But Mary knows this. We talked about that too yesterday. And she said, I know. It could happen tomorrow. And the support no. she has, are you confident that it's... The probation service yeah. are being extremely supportive. The official solicitor has, has uh, published injunctions which are totally unprecedented, which protect this family from any kind of contact. If anyone, anyone at all, from the media uh, approaches these people for further than 800 yards, they will be sent to prison. Which I think is lovely. <laughs> I wonder if I could uh, quote uh, the last paragraph of your book written in 1972. Uh, it says as uh, follows. As I come to the end of writing this book, I remember a conversation I had with Mary's grandmother some time ago. She said that she could see no good coming from anything that was written about Mary. Not even a serious book, I asked. One that just might help her now and other children later. No, she said, it could not help but ruin her future. In view of all that's happened after the second book, do you think Mary's grandmother was right? Well, I mean, <laughs> You ask, a, you, you, you ask a question which has not been asked before, and I've got to tell you, um, even though I liked uh, Mary's grandmother very much, she was, a, she was a very nice and honest, in her own way, honest woman. But you know, Betty Bell, Mary's mother, was a very pathological child from very early on, and in the same book, you can read Mary's grandmother saying to me, perhaps Betty should have seen a psychiatrist. Perhaps if I had done that, 
all this would never have happened. And that's my answer to you. That's what she was talking about. I mean, that, of course, does underline the, uh, the, um, the vat of oil, in a sense, that you've involved yourself in, because there is, a, there is this chain of, uh, if, if, if that's the story, then there's a chain of exploitation and abuse as one struggles to understand Mary, so one struggles to understand Betty, so one struggles to understand that, Betty's that's mother. That's so true, Tony, but you see, the, the triumph, if you forgive me for using that word, the triumph is that Mary has broken the chain. And it is, you know this better than anyone. I mean, the chain, to break the chain of abuse is practically impossible. It happens very, very rarely. She has not only broken the chain of abuse, but she has, she has broken the chain of, of neglect, of, of, of weakness, of weakness. She is actually, and I think we can learn from that, and I think we can pass this on to, I don't know, to the world around us, that it is possible, that it can be done. And but that, but you're, you're, that is a hostage to fortune. We, we watch and wait. I mean, yes, we watch and wait, but, but uh, my you're, goodness. You're, you're I mean, going further than I would go. All right. OK, I'll admit it. I'm an optimist. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, sorry, there was someone here. I, I just wanted to ask, did you feel um, that do you feel that Mary has largely healed those wounds? We were talking. This, I'm sorry, Jan. Do you feel that she has largely healed those childhood wounds? We were talking this morning about the usefulness of therapy and how some people would opt for it and some would not. did find her, uh, a, a famous child psychiatrist who, who um, because it's a child psychiatrist she would need, by the way. It's not a, you know, it's a child psychiatrist because it's the child in her that needs the help first. <laughs> so yes, she does. She, she does. she does need this. And we, 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 we really tried and we, we almost got there because I said, look, from the moment we finish, you must see a psychiatrist. It has to start. You will have to work, perhaps for years to come, because what she has to take issue with, you see, and she has not, of course, is, is, is her relationship with her mother. I mean, her mother, what her mother has done to her. She says, no, I'm fine now. I'm, I'm, now that I've talked to you, I'm, uh, I'm, of course she isn't. Of course she isn't fine. But she is much better, yes. It did have to come out. It had to come out. I wish to God, and particularly in view of what's happened to me lately, I wish to God it had come out with a psychiatrist rather than me. How, one but, question I meant to ask you. Um, how much did Mary talk about the fact that her father is not her father? Oh, a great deal. A great deal. For about, I don't know, for about two months. And we don't know who her biological father was? No, but we do have an idea. Oh. Yeah. Which we can't, which we couldn't possibly say. And does, but, does but, I mean, her mother said, her mother, when, when she finally, 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 in 1992, she said, I am not going to, I am not going to go on with this. I'm going to go up to Newcastle and I'm going to confront her. I'm going to say, tell me who it is. And so she went up to Newcastle and she said to her mother, don't evade it. Don't evade it again. Tell me who my father is. Was it my grandfather? 
I couldn't have been because he died when, when Betty was 13. Was it my uncle? Was it a close friend of yours? And her mother said, you are the devil's spawn. And left the room. Well, I'll leave it to your imagination. tremendous admiration for what you've, you've done in your previous works and I don't want to flinch from the idea that one needs to look at the, the psychology and the psychopathology of Mary Bell but I have to say I'm concerned at the lack of questioning and acknowledgement of the victims that Mary Bell created um, you know I mean I, my family come uh, uh, some of my family did not make it out through the Holocaust I don't flinch from uh, looking closely at the psychology of Nazis, but nobody is about to suddenly say that the victims of the Holocaust, or indeed the victims of the Second World War, or any atrocity, suddenly don't count. And I have to say that I do feel that the focus on Mary Bell, and all of your interviews, and in fact all of your comments today, you've mentioned the victims once, you've mentioned that you would have given them two days notice, and I don't think that's acceptable. I think it's much less interesting to be the victim. What can you say about a mother whose child has been killed in a derelict building? But those people never will be analysed. They will never get over their loss. And I think, to some extent, what you're doing is actually glamorising it, whatever you call it. And I, I find that morally unacceptable. Um, you mean glamorising... Uh, you mean glamorising the, the deed? Or you mean glamorizing? I think it's much sexier to analyze the mind of somebody who has been so horrendously abused and well, to look I at the motives and to look at how it reflects on society and as my grandmother would say, unserweiter, unserweiter. It does not feel as sexy to say, what does it feel like 35 years on when your child is not going to be 39? But your child but, uh, died because an 11-year-old girl, for whatever reason, killed it. And I think those are moral questions as pressing as the ones about Mary Bell but being see, a good mother now. You see, I, I, uh, they, they, are, uh, they are very emotional questions and uh, very legitimate emotional questions. But uh, didn't I hear you say just now that um, there is very little you can say about... Uh, but is this just victims? about what you can say? No, no, no. But I mean, this is obviously what... Well, otherwise, I wouldn't have written a book. I mean, obviously, we are talking about what one can say. Uh, if I had... I, uh, of course, the, have you, you've read the book, have you? No, I've not oh, read the I book. Oh, I Well, if you haven't read the book. But I, the, the point is that uh, Martin and Brian, who Mary killed, and indeed um, their families, who are on the last page of the book, again, go through this whole book. These children were, throughout the months that Mary talked to me, they were in her minds constantly and indeed in mine. But your 
your, well, really your challenge, because that's what it is, to, uh, would it not be fairer, it's really what you are saying, to write about the victims and to write about the victims' families. But you know, without, you know, without now being sensitive, please, just for a minute, all of you, imagine that you are a writer. Now, what would you write about the victims, except how sad you are? What would you say? Now, we've all written, those of us who write, have all written, of course, for instance, about the victims of the Holocaust. I mean, I have written pages and pages and pages about it. Because, of course, they went through experiences which, you know, which, which need to be described, which need to be remembered, and I have done so. The mothers of Brian and Martin, I know, I know uh, Martin's mother, and I liked her a lot when I met her in 69. I frankly wouldn't know what to write about them. You mean, oh, you mean they're, they're forgiving? No, 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 that's fine. You haven't got a microphone. You have to. Yes, but you. Uh, you mean for, for, for forgiving, forgiving whom? Mary Bell. Forgiving Mary Bell. You mean you could write a book about, for instance, the parents of the of the of the children to see, but uh, you see, uh, Mary Mary, uh, for internal use of Macmillan's, uh, a, a video was made with Mary, which cannot ever be seen publicly, but um, in this in this uh, video, uh, which was made by my daughter, who is a filmmaker, uh, my daughter asks her, well, what do you think? I mean, how about? Martin's and Brian's families. What about their mothers? How do you think they will feel about this book? And Mary says, they cannot forgive me. They cannot ever forgive me. How can they? They will feel this loss, she says, to the end of their lives, and I am to blame for it. Now, I Forgive me, but I cannot see what more can be said. I, I, might I just say a couple of things? I don't think Gitta can be criticized for the fact that the issue wasn't raised because I didn't ask it about the victims. In the book, throughout the book, there are references right at the very end. And perhaps I should read it. It might seem that in all of this discussion, I've forgotten the families of the victims of these crimes. It is not so. As I've said repeatedly throughout the book, that is true. They have been constantly on my mind. I know that their deep wish must have been never to have to relive the memory of those dreadful days, indeed never to hear the name of Mary Bell again. But while I have been writing, I've kept wondering whether somehow, superhumanly, these families who saw themselves so appallingly robbed of their children could come to understand my purpose and find some crumb of solace in that understanding. I think most of us now accept that Mary Bell was not a, quote, murderer, unquote. She was a severely damaged child whom no one helped, no evil was felt, no evil intended. Only a child's ultimate despair led to this tragedy. I would certainly put my uh, on the line on this. I think that um, as the uh, the um, sparsity 
uh, of uh, the resources that are devoted to helping highly disturbed children, let alone Mary Bell, are flimsy, to put it mildly, undervalued, underrated, and the tabloids show no interest in exposing that disgrace, so the facilities available for helping victims of crime, mm. likewise, it has been a source of enormous uh, consolation to me to watch the relatives in Northern Ireland at the time of the referendum come out on television and almost to a man and woman support what was an extremely difficult agreement for them to put their names to because of what they've been through. Some of them, I just hope, had been helped in a community and in an environment to come to terms with horrors and terrible things that had happened to them done by adults in full, and nobody ever questioned their mental state, in full rational behaviour, bombs in supermarkets and in pubs, mutilations, you know the full horror of 3,000 deaths in that part of, uh, of Ireland. The, the tragedy, I think, and I felt it when I saw some of the relatives of Mary Bell on television, I saw people who it seemed to me had had no help. I may be wrong, I may be completely wrong about this. It looked to me as if they were left it imprisoned in their it ghastly deprivation. No I think, all right, you make the criticism to Gita, but really, I suppose it could be as easily made to the 101 authors and writers and novelists and psychiatrists and psychologists who stream down to this wonderful part of, of Wales. Why have none of them written? Of course, some have written about victims. There is a literature about victims. Uh, it's very difficult to get to the victims of, of, of such crimes because they do, they, they're, as I say, many of them are indeed imprisoned. Insofar as it's a criticism, you've put it to Gita and you've heard her reply. I think it is a problem. I don't think the word forgiveness enters into this, I have to say. I do not think it's in Gita Sereni's right or resource to forgive anyone. She wasn't, you weren't, uh, you weren't uh, afflicted, and, except indirectly. No one can forgive except the victims of a crime. But it has been said by a psychotherapist to me uh, that at the heart of so much unworked through disturbance is an inability to forgive. And that isn't something that can be visited on you. People are helped to forgive through all sorts of resources. And it does seem to me every now and again that the media, the tabloid media, have the most scandalous willing ability to pull out people who have never worked through terrible things that happened to them and grotesquely exploit it again parade them on television to live out their unworked through hatred and resentment and rage in a way that disturbs many of us. And then we do not turn our violence on the perpetrator. We turn them on you for writing the book about Mary Bell in the first place. As if in the end, since we've given up on providing facilities, we don't want to know any of it. I think I'll so, keep it in my pocket from now on. So, 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 I see, so to those people who say, um, what about the victims? Let me put back to you. What about the victims? What are we going to do in our society? Let alone writing a book, which is Gita's modest way about Mary Bell, writing a book about the victims. But much more needs to be done about the victims. And I was very struck by that and felt myself rather guilty at how little, for instance, the psychiatrists of North and South of Ireland had done in any sense to contribute to the healing that was needed for the Good Friday Agreement to be signed. Incredibly, that healing seemed to have been taken place in, in both sides of Ireland, although it came as a great surprise to the extent to which it had. But it certainly didn't come as a result of the systematic uh, provision of skilled and helpful services. It came from, I suspect, ordinary men and women. And perhaps one hopes that the, uh, the relatives of Martin Brown and Brian Howe had ordinary men and women to sustain them through their, their turmoil, but I, I unfortunately have my doubts. I want to uh, end with, with uh, since, since uh, you, you, you are, I just want to end with a quote from this book. 
Uh, because in the end, you said rather bravely, I suspect, and you may have given more hostages to fortune in what you said this afternoon. You said in the end that, and you chose your words carefully, as uh, befits a, a skilled journalist, that you uh, were exploiting, in one sense, Mary Bell. And I take it you meant for this. You wrote, it's, it's, I think it's Shammy, it's Dr. It is, uh, Shamaret. He says, when I was starting, he said, analysis, which meant peeling away the layers, was de rigueur. It is true that this is different now, and many of the new methods of therapy work curious echo of what we were talking about this morning. But the treatment of severely disturbed children, he feels, allows few shortcuts. And quote, the maxim, the younger the sapling, the easier to train still applies, he said. Quote, but it is true that this demands enormous energy, enormous faith, and if it is to be properly done, and as we can see from what was done with Mary and the surely well-meaning Red Bank, there's no point in not doing it properly, enormous resources. I cannot tell you, he said, how completely I stand behind you in your effort with this book to effect changes in the system, both as regards how children who commit crimes are tried and how they are dealt with afterwards. And I say, with all the reservations I've heard expressed here, some of them, particularly the comments about the victims, do make me feel uneasy. I do come away from here uncertain. That notwithstanding, I think what you've done with this book is indeed another little cry in the noisy world out there that we do something about the fragmentation of families this disruption of our society such that the Mary Bells of this world, whatever makes them in, in their constitution, do not flourish. And so the horrible experiences of the victims do not have to be experienced. In that sense, I stand full square behind you in, in, in writing this book. Uh, and I, I wish you well in further writings. And who knows, maybe, uh, maybe you take account of some of the things said here today. I have no idea. But I, as I say, I wish you well. I very much... Uh, uh, enjoyed is the wrong word. I've, um, I've been uh, privileged to, uh, to hear what you've had to say about the writing of, of what is, by any measures, uh, an extraordinary book. And to those of you who haven't read it, I suggest you do, yeah. because uh, it is a much more solid and thorough and thoughtful and sensitive work than, I'm afraid, that the, the serialization of the bits and certainly the noise that was then that then erupted ever gives a, a, a credibility to it. And in that sense, I think that needs to be said, because any suggestion, I think you'll agree, that Gish Sereni is not a serious person about a serious business, has to be even now dispelled. I can't, I'm under the most extraordinarily controlled rules, I can't take a, another question, but Gish Sereni is in somewhere, uh, you know, uh, signing, signing her book, and if this morning is anything to go by, in this audience are people who, at the drop of a hat, will seek a consultation. Uh, and uh, I, 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 fear, I fear there are still questions, uh, some of the last particularly, that still will be pursued. And I wish you well in the response to them. Thank you. Thank you very much.